Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in this interview, I talk to Shafik Meji about Bolivia in South America. From the silver mines of empire to modern lithium mining under gigantic salt flats, Bolivia has played a significant part in history and is now shaping the future of green technology. Shafik talks about the diversity of the country, from its landscape to its people and religious ceremonies, as well as recommended places to visit and books to read. I hope you enjoy the interview today. Shafik Meji is an award-winning travel writer, journalist, and author specializing in Latin America and South Asia. He has co-authored more than 40 guidebooks, and his latest book is Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. So welcome, Shafik. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be chatting to you, and uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about all things Bolivia. Well, let's start with the basics, just in case people don't know. Where is Bolivia and what are some of its unique characteristics in terms of geography and climate? Yeah, so I think partly as the title of my book alludes to, a lot of people who aren't familiar with South America or Bolivia specifically would find it difficult to place. It's essentially right in the heart of South America. It's kind of bounded by five different countries, Brazil and Argentina, Peru, Paraguay and Chile. And it's incredibly geographically and climatically diverse. So it's landlocked, but apart from the sea, it has the world's largest salt flat. It has a massive high altitude lake, Titicaca, which I'm sure lots of people have heard of. It has some of the highest mountains on earth, of course, the Andes. It's got part of the Pantanal, which is the world's largest tropical wetland, which it shares with Brazil. Around a third of it lies within the Amazon basin. There's foothills and there's lowlands, uh, there's desert-like landscapes, there's huge metropolistic cities. It's incredibly diverse. And the climate ranges from absolutely freezing to sweltering. And you can sometimes experience both of those in the same day. Oh, brilliant. We're going to come back to some of those places. But before we do, how did you come to travel so much to Bolivia? And what's your personal link there? I, I mean, I, th- I think... Like a a lot of places and destinations that people come to love, it was really just by chance. It was a bit of an accident. I started off my career as a news and sports journalist and then slowly got fed up of that and resigned and went backpacking around India and then around South America. And I was really at that point just doing the highlights. I wanted to go to Rio for Carnival and had a wonderful time there. And then after that, <laughs> I course. wanted to, of course, I mean, it's it's impossible not to. And really, I only spent, planned to spend a few weeks there and ended up spending a couple of months. But after that, I managed to drag myself away and I wanted to hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu, classic gringo trail stuff. But at the time, I couldn't afford to fly. And the cheapest way was to travel overland from Brazil to Peru through Bolivia. And so I kind of 
plan to do that and didn't really think too much about it. I didn't really know much about the country. But as soon as I crossed the border, I kind of I got hooked. I ended up spent traveling to the Salade Uni, a kind of an otherworldly landscape, the world's largest salt flat. I visited the world's richest silver mine. I've traveled into the Amazon and explored the most biodiverse national park on earth. I went to some of the highest cities in the world, well over 4,000 meters. And during that time, I really started to learn a bit more about the cultures, the peoples, the history. And I realized that this country that, uh, you know, most people, including myself before visiting, would have had trouble placing on a map has actually influenced and helped even to shape the world in profound and unexpected ways. Uh, and that really led to kind of a lifelong love of the place. So I later returned as a travel writer to co-author The Rough Guide to Bolivia. And that gave me a great excuse and an opportunity to visit virtually every part of the country. And in, the, in doing so, I met so many fascinating people who were generous enough to share their stories. And I learned about the history of the country. And I learned about how really it feels like the future has arrived in Bolivia. It stands on the front line of so many touchstone issues, the climate emergency, populism, and so on. And that all was brought together in my book, Cross Off the Map. I want to return something you said there. You said that Bolivia has influenced and shaped the world in unexpected ways. And I bet everyone's listening is surprised about that because probably we don't know. So what are some of those ways? Yeah, I'll tell you the story that really first gave me an insight into this aspect of Bolivia's history. And it was a visit to a place called Potosi, which today most people outside of the country don't really know too much about it, may not have heard of it before. But Potosi is the second highest city on earth. It's high up in the Altiplano, which is a high plain between two branches of the Andes. It's a city and above it rises a mountain called Cerro Rico. And that was home uh, about 500 years ago to the richest silver mine in history. During the Spanish colonial period, so much silver was pulled out of these mines that they said that you could, according, according to legend, you could build a solid silver railway track all the way from Bolivia to Madrid and still have enough left over for a solid silver engine to ride on top. And this silver changed the world. It connected up Europe and Latin America and Africa and Asia together for the first time. The silver was shipped to Europe, which helped to fund the Industrial Revolution and various wars and conflicts. It travelled over to Asia, to Manila, on these huge galleons, and there it was traded for Chinese-made goods. And uh, the silver from Potosi helped to fund the Great Wall of China, for example. And it also played a role in destabilizing various various dynasties it became such an such a you know such a significant place for hundreds of years and it became synonymous with great wealth in Don, Don Quixote there's a phrase worth apostasy which means worth a fortune which would have been commonly understood at that time now has obviously drifted out it's also the source of like quirky things such as pieces of eight. So this pirate phrase is actually based on some of the silver currency that came out of Potosi. So when I visited, I didn't know anything about this, but I ended up going into these mines, which are centuries old now. They call them rat runs. They're very claustrophobic and you're simultaneously thousands of metres above sea level and hundreds of metres underground and you're crawling on your your stomach and then there's all these poisonous dusts around there was arsenic dust <laughs> everywhere when I visited it's a very unsettling place and you see the miners who still work there now the silver has largely long gone 
Uh, but, uh, you know, the miners, many, many miners still work there, hoping to strike it rich in very, very difficult conditions. And it's incredibly intense experience. And so that started to give me an idea and an interest in the history. And then the more I read and the more I learned and the more I spoke to people in the city, I realized kind of what an influence this city, once one of the richest and biggest on earth, but now forgotten, had had on the rest of the world. And it's stories like that that kind of helped to help to spur me to write the book, because I thought these are just fantastic stories. And they deserve to be better known beyond Bolivia's borders. Wow, that's so interesting. When you look into history and you realise how far things travel, it's incredible. And what you're talking about there is essentially pillaged out of (laughs) Bolivia and taken across the world. And I I wonder how much of our silver that we look at here, here even in England, is from there. I presume it doesn't have a mark or, I mean, once things are made into things, we wouldn't know, would we, I guess, how far it's gone? Absolutely. People listening to this podcast will have silver if they've got old heirlooms, family heirlooms, perhaps, or things that are made a few hundred years ago. They may well have something made from Potosi silver. And actually, I should say at this point that, of course, all of this wealth came at a great cost. It was born Mm. by the indigenous peoples of the Andes, and it was also born by enslaved Africans who were trafficked over to labor in the mines and in the smelting plants and so on. But definitely, Potosi silver, people will have seen it, and some people may have it in their possession without knowing it. One other kind of quirky thing from that is that the dollar sign, one of the most recognisable symbols today, the origin of that also kind of drifts back to Potosi. So Potosi's initials uh, used to be stamped on the, the silver coins that were made in the Royal Mint, which is now a fascinating museum in Potosi, and they were shipped around the world. And the P-T-S-I over one another vaguely resembles the dollar sign, and um, that was how that particular symbol developed. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So interesting. So I guess just coming back to the Indigenous people, because this is the history of the world is is a history of conquest. But there are, I think, based on looking at your book, there are still aspects that the Indigenous people still play a part in the culture. So tell us a bit more, like what aspects of Bolivia now are based around the Indigenous people? Well, I mean, this is one of one of the aspects of Bolivian society that really fascinates me. And also, I think, is really of interest to the increasing numbers of travellers and tourists that make it out there. Huge numbers of Bolivians have Indigenous heritage, and there's an incredible range of Indigenous cultural groups across the country with often very different beliefs and practices and cultural makeups and so on. And really, over the last 20 years or so, after many centuries of, of repression and violence and so on, some of those things are starting to be corrected in Bolivia. Bolivia had, about 20 years ago, had the first indigenous president in South American history, a guy called Evo Morales. And although his legacy is mixed, shall we say, one of the things that it led to was a real flourishing of indigenous identity and pride and representation. And so if you travel in Bolivia today, in any any part of Bolivia, from the, the hot and sweaty eastern lowlands all the way up into the Amazon or to the high altitude cities of the Andes, you will see indigenous culture kind of thriving in a way that you may not see in many neighbouring countries such as Chile or Argentina or, um, 
or Brazil. And of course, these indigenous cultures are fused with European influences and also African influences. Because as I mentioned, huge numbers of enslaved Africans were, were trafficked to, to Bolivia and elsewhere in South America, of course, during the colonial period. And so all of these are fused together. And so I'm sure we'll talk about some of the festivals and uh, celebrations late, later in this talk. But you really see some of those, this fusion of ideas and this blend and this mixture of influences coming together in events like that. Well, tell us about these now. And you've mentioned that wherever you travel, you can find this. But are there like specific places that people can go to to attend one of these festivals or places where the architecture might be resonant and you know, some specifics rather than anywhere you go, you can see this stuff? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It's always better to be specific with these kind of things. I'll pick a couple in, in terms of festivals and religious celebrations. Carnival. In, in Bolivia, and carnival celebrated across Bolivia, but the most famous one is in a city called Oruro, which is an old tin mining city in the Andean region. And it can be a kind of melancholy place for much of the year. But during carnival, late February, early March, it becomes a riot of activity. So as I mentioned, it bl- the celebrations blend indigenous African and European influences. There are parades and street parties. And the highlight is the Diablada, which is the Dance of the Devils. And essentially that's a snaking procession of dancers in devilish masks, clanging brass bands coming up behind them. And there's figures representing Lucifer and uh, Archangel Michael. Everyone's in absolutely outlandish costumes. And despite the thin Christian veneer behind things, you really see the indigenous origins of the beliefs coming to the fore. So Lucifer is often said to represent the Andean god of the underworld. So you can go along and as people might expect from carnivals around the world. There's copious eating and drinking and dancing and merrymaking and so on. But the Aurora Carnival is an absolutely fascinating thing to really experience. In terms of um, architecture, I kind of, you know, there's lots and lots of historic architecture. There's ruins dating back to pre-Inca civilizations. There's lots and lots of Spanish colonial architecture in cities like Sucre. But the architecture I'm often most interested in is in a place called El Alto. Now, El Alto, not too familiar for people outside of South America. It's the highest city on earth. It's just above La Paz, which is the de facto capital. And it's really, it's developed. It's one of the fastest growing cities in South America. And it's developed massively over the last 40 years or so. Huge numbers of indigenous uh, migration, predominantly people from the Aymara, um, indigenous group who have fled droughts and often caused by the climate crisis, which is having a huge impact in the Andes, but also economic crises and uh, political crises and so on. And they flock to this city and it's become a real hotbed of Aymara culture and identity. And one of the ways you see that it's expressed is in the architecture. And over the you know, last couple of decades, something called choles have developed. And these are kind of multi-purpose, incredibly colourful, bright buildings that double up as shops, as entertainment spaces for weddings, for birthday parties and so on. 
which play a big role in Aymara culture. And there's often a uh, so, some housing as well, and including for the owner, often a, a chalet, which is part of the portmanteau word. But the look of these buildings is incredibly eye-catching. You know, you'll have some that uh, resemble characters from Marvel movies. You'll have some that represent, there's one that looks, that's been designed to look like Optimus Prime, a character from Transformers. A Technicolor, lots of glass and mirrors and all manner of colours. And they blend both kind of modern, modern touches with the indigenous uh, Andean symbols. It's a real clash of influences. The last time I visited, I had a wonderful guide and she described it as firecracker architecture. Mm. Um, I certainly can't do any better than that. But I really advise people to, you know, stick it into Google after, after you've listened to this and have a look because they're absolutely fascinating buildings, but also they've got a great story behind them too. Mm, that's great. And I always like to find pictures for the show notes. So hopefully I'll have some if people want to go look at the show notes. But I want to come back, uh, lots of things to come back on. But you mentioned this thin Christian veneer, which I really, I like that phrase a lot. When I was having a look at your book and about the cities, that it seems that death culture and occult things are more common. So you mentioned the devil dancing, but La Paz has this unusual cemetery and there's a witch market. So tell us what is underneath this thin Christian veneer that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's something that if you visit a city like La Paz, you're, it'll immediately become obvious to you just as you wander the streets. I mean, let's start off with the cemetery. It's the Cementerio General, the general cemetery, the biggest in La Paz. But essentially, it's a mini city. I think it's roughly about 1.5 square miles. So huge, really. Uh, It kind of dates back to the early 1800s. And they're really compact tombs. So they're all stacked on top of each other, almost like shelves. And space is is of an essence. La Paz is in a valley high up in the mountains, very, very steep sides. The buildings are absolutely crammed in there. There's not a lot of space. So that's reflected in something like the cemetery. And I, I believe that the remains had to be cremated after about 10 years and moved to a smaller space. So you're often only temporarily in slot in the cemetery. But if you walk around, it feels like you're in a mini city of the dead within the larger city of La Paz. I mean, actually, just to go very briefly off tangent, you'll find similar things in other South American cities, even in places like Buenos Aires, the famous Recoleta Cemetery, huge, huge places. And they're right in the middle of the cities. And they have more of an urban feel than often our graveyards and cemeteries have, say, say in the UK. But often when when I'm traveling to research articles or or books, I always pay a visit to the cemetery because I think they offer an incredible insight into the history, the place, just the names, the causes of death and that kind of thing. It offers an insight into the culture and the history. Something that's much more on the tourist trail than that, though, is the witch's market. I should say the so-called witch's market, which is in the heart of the tourist, uh, the backpacker area. And essentially, it's although it's called the witch's market, that's actually a kind of a Spanish colonial term. These women, predominantly indigenous women, known locally as chifleras. And they're kind of a cross between a healer, a counsellor, a doctor, a, a medicine woman. It doesn't have the kind of the pejorative sense that which, you know, is often used that for in, in an English language point of view. But their stalls are absolutely incredible to look around. Often they have all 
manner of amulets and potions. And uh, the thing that really strikes newcomers the most are the llama fetuses, which are oh. dried and 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 yeah, and hung up above the door. And you often have to duck under them to uh, get into these tiny tiny shops. And they're really like almost as big as a broom cupboard. It's that kind of thing. So the llama fetuses feature very very heavily in 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 the traditional central Andean, Andean traditions. For example, if you're buying a new house or you're building a new house, you will often bury a llama fetus beneath the surface, but beneath the foundations, and that's supposed to bring you luck. Similarly, if you're embarking on a uh, long journey. Um, and, it's like a uh, rabbit's foot here in the UK. Like people put, carry a rabbit's foot for luck. I mean, but we don't now, but it's, it's one of yeah. those sort of uh, uh, lucky charm type things. No, but exactly. I mean, and actually, that's a, it's, a, it's a really good example to bring up because often people, you know, if you're coming from the UK, you're coming from Europe, this seems crazy and outlandish and very exotic, in inverted commas. But actually, when you interrogate some of our own beliefs, often actually there's similarities with them. I should say the llama fetuses are stillborn. So that's how they come about. And across the Andean part of Bolivia, you'll see llamas and alpacas play a huge part in the culture, both as food and transport and for cultural reasons. Mm. Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, that's the, the witch's market is or the so-called witches market rather offers a fascinating insight into these um into these these beliefs which are live it live it living beliefs really and uh, particularly if you speak some spanish then you can have a chat with some of the chief leaders who uh, normally if you buy something will be happy to talk so it's interesting there i mean you mentioned that this so-called witches market is in the tourist area and you said earlier about the gringo trail and this backpacker route and it kind of comes down to one of the difficulties that i think you do tackle in your book which is that we yes we want to travel we are people who like to travel but there's also the climate crisis that you mentioned there's are we changing culture through backpacking and all of this so how can we balance this as people who want to travel but also want to be more responsible I think this is a, a key question for really for travel writers, but all of us who travel and go on holiday at the moment. First of all, if you're in the UK, you've got to fly to Bolivia, which obviously has a huge carbon imprint. Putting that to one side, there are lots of ways that while you're there, that you can actually have a positive impact on local communities, and particularly local communities that are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis. There are lots of really good community-run and indigenous-run tourism agencies and also lodges. To give you a really good practical example, there's a lodge called Chalalan, which is in part National Medidi in the Amazon. It's run by an indigenous community and it's helped to both empower that community and also help to preserve some of the most biodiverse rainforests on earth. So I think if you're there, there's ways to have a positive impact obviously try and avoid internal flights as tempting as that can be but also be aware that the way you spend your money you're obviously having an impact on the local cultures as well the witches market which obviously we're just talking about now that is aimed at local people originally but it has become more touristy in recent years and you can generally see that some aspects of it are played up it's a difficult balancing act because also you know Tourist spending money is a key source of income for these for people as well. So I think generally look for independent places to stay in, look for locally um, and ideally indigenous run 
tourism organizations to go with travel agencies and really try and minimize your carbon impact once you're there which is taking public transport avoiding flights and also if you visit reserves not just in the amazon but also places like the salar de uni which is the the world's largest salt flat the tourism gives local people an economic incentive to help conserve these often very threatened ecosystems so it's a thorny issue that there's not easy answers to it but there are certainly ways to minimize the negative impact you have and in certain areas have a positive impact when you visit so you've mentioned this salt flat several times and part of me is like okay that sounds great and then part of me just has this view in my mind that i would never want to visit a salt flat so what is it about this salt flat that makes it so amazing yeah, on the surface, it doesn't sound super appealing. But if you imagine an incredibly flat, blindingly white, the brightest place I've ever been, expanse surrounded by volcanoes and mountains and dotted with these islands of giant cacti, it's a really otherworldly landscape. And I've just said it, it's the biggest in the world. It's roughly the size of Jamaica. That's how big <laughs> this uh, this salt flat is. And this is only one of several salt flats in southwestern Bolivia. <clears throat> but you can explore on uh, on jeep tours and the surface of the salt flat are covered by, they look like giant fish scales, kind of hexagonal shapes. And you can play lots of tricks of, with perspective while you're there. I mean, it's a hallucinatory landscape. It really is. It feels like stepping onto another planet. And there's a nearby reserve as well, uh, which is even higher altitude. And there they've got mineral stained lakes. So there's a green lake. Uh, there's a red lake as well, dotted with flamingos. There's these surreal stones that have been sculpted by the very high winds there. There's areas that look like lunar landscapes. So Salt Flat really doesn't do this area justice. The Salar de Uni and the neighbouring um, Eduardo Avaroa Reserve are really almost as close as you can get to stepping onto another planet as you can on Earth. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. And is that the place where they did some of those sort of fastest cars racing across the what looks like a desert? Is it that on the salt flats or is that in America? I'm trying to remember. The time trials, I think they do on salt flats in the US, but they do very much have races in the Salado Uni as well. In fact, the Paris-Dakar rally, which confusingly now <laughs> is is often over in, in South America, has been held on the salt flats in the past. And in fact, there's other sporting events as well. There's an ultra marathon that goes across it as well, which is challenging to put it mildly because you're 3,600 metres odd above sea level. So the altitude is really tested. And it's an incredibly remote area. It's, it, it's linked by train or a town on the edge is linked by train from some of the, from some of the bigger cities, but you just have to travel across by Toyota Land Cruisers, and you often have this landscape to yourself. And this is dotted with uh, small communities that rely on salt trading, which has been an, an industry in this area for for millennia. Quinoa farmers, llama herders, um, but yeah, it's a fascinating place to visit. And also, it has more modern challenges. It's a big area for smuggling, both for cars and for drugs, because it's very close to the the Chilean border. And the terrain is very, very difficult to manage. So an awful lot of cars and cars and drugs crisscross over the border. And also, interestingly, this is another area where Bolivia will help to shape or certainly will impact the wider world over the years to come. 
because the the beneath the surface of the salt flat and the surface of the salt in some places around 10 meters or so but below it there's kind of like a briny fluid which is very rich in lithium and lithium oh. is the lightest metal on earth you know the fact that we're able to do this recording is thanks to the lithium battery in in our laptops lithium is essential for electric vehicles it's used in solar solar panels it's an absolutely vital material or metal for our transition to a hopefully fairly soon to a lower carbon global economy and according to some estimates roughly 50 percent of the world's lithium supplies lie in what's called the lithium triangle which is in this part of bolivia and also in in neighboring argentina and chile so at the moment you're if you're traveling across along with all these these natural wonders and these things like salt traders which seem to have been around forever you'll also find these grids of uh, kind of tennis court sized pools of turquoise water or turquoise liquid and these are the fledgling lithium programs with the brine being pumped up and, uh, and funny enough recently i think over the last couple of months Bolivia has actually started to produce its first electric cars mm-hmm. within the country as well, taking advantage of its lithium reserves. So all in all, the Salado Uni is, is an incredibly diverse and interesting place to explore, particularly at the moment. Yeah, wow. And kind of in my mind now, because I used to work for a mining company in Australia, and you see the landscape quite dramatically changed when mining wealth is is found so i can imagine that that will change quite a lot over the coming years so that's really interesting a quick quick question before we talk about books you've mentioned the altitude a number of times and i do know someone who like came to bolivia and got sick with altitude sickness so is that a problem and any recommendations for the altitude issues Yes, it's absolutely something to be aware of. If you're visiting the Western Andean side of of Bolivia, most of it is very high altitude. So if you fly into La Paz, you fly into the world's highest international airport, which is well over 4,000 metres. If you've got the time, the best way to avoid it is to fly into sea level. You're as close as you can to sea level to another city and then slowly wake your, make your way up pause in every 500 or 1,000 metres, so you adapt. However, that's not, not a luxury that everyone has. So if you do fly into La Paz, really take it easy for the first few days until you've started to acclimatise. Get lots of sleep, drink lots of water, avoid alcohol, and definitely don't overdo it. Even when you adapt, you'll still feel tired, you'll get exhausted quickly. I always think of it as a, a bit of an insight into the ageing process, kind of speed it up because even just fl- climbing the flight of stairs will feel like scaling Everest. So um, yeah, definitely take it easy, but be aware of the symptoms as well. And and if, unless you've got a serious attack of it in which you should go to hospital, the best approach is to descend. And even within La Paz, there's various park places either in the city or nearby that are lower altitude. Yeah. So if, if you're struggling, descend. Yeah, good tip. <laughs> so we're always out of time. And this is the Books and Travel podcast. So what are some of your recommended books about or set in Bolivia? Yeah, I mean, the one, one of the things, it's a real shame that very few Bolivian authors are translated into English. And beyond academic books, very few English language authors write about the country, which is one of the reasons that I wrote Crossed Off the Map to kind of help 
fill this in. But there's definitely a few other books that I would recommend. The first one is The Bolivia Reader, which is Duke University Press, and it's got several editors. And it features an incredible range of extracts of writing about Bolivia, mainly from Bolivian authors. You have pieces by the former former president, Evo Morales, who was the first indigenous president in South America, but also by people like Che Guevara, who died in Bolivia, and also like uh, conquistadors like Pedro de Cesar Leon, who provides one of the earliest written accounts of Bolivia. So the book ranges from ancient stories and poetries and legends to fiction and contemporary journalism. As I say, I I particularly found it useful and interesting to read the early accounts from the 16th century. One of the other books I'd recommend is 1491, The Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann. And that examines the indigenous societies across the Americas, including in what is now Bolivia, prior to the arrival of Europeans. And it was particularly interesting on the ancient cultures of the Llanos de Moxos, which is a part of the Bolivian Amazon. And these ancient societies built thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of earthwork structures, including even pyramids in some of the most challenging environments imaginable. It's an incredibly insightful book. And actually, it was a huge inspiration for uh, Crossed Off the Map. Also in the, uh, the Bolivian Amazon, which is a reason that is often overlooked, so I always like to emphasize it, is a book called Lost in the Jungle by a guy called Yossi Ginsberg. People might be familiar with it because it was made into a film a few years ago called Jungle with Daniel Radcliffe. And it's an adventurous tale of survival in the Bolivian Amazon. It's essentially Yossi Ginsberg was an Israeli backpacker who went off on an expedition into the rainforest. Uh, inevitably it goes wrong he ends up lost and alone and uh, but he survives against great odds despite being menaced by wild animals not having any food and so on and he was eventually rescued by indigenous communities and wrote a very interesting uh, and exciting book about it there's also a coda to that book because it really helped to encourage interest in the Bolivian Amazon amongst backpackers initially Israeli backpackers but then backpackers from the UK Europe and beyond. And it helped to turn a place called Ruanabake into a hub of ecotourism. So it's had an interesting afterlife as well. But I think those three books will give you a bit of an insight into uh, Believer's history uh, and also its uh, contemporary life. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books online? Right. If you can spell my name, I'm easy to find. So it's uh, shafitmeji.com and then that's the same for my Twitter and Instagram handles. And Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia, is available from all good bookshops. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Shafik. That was great. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.